This Week in Oklahoma Politics on KOSU is sponsored by the State Chamber of Oklahoma. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma County is handing its redistricting process to State House and Senate staffers. Commissioner Brian Mon says this decision is the most efficient as the state handles the process for 75 other counties. Opponents, including Commissioner Kerry Bloomer, argues it removes transparency and public input. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this decision? Well, I think Commissioner Bloomer's points are well taken here. I mean, we're, we're looking at a process uh, that if you move it over to the uh, legislative staff, you take it outside of open meetings, outside of open records compliance, and it means that the process is largely in the dark. And, you know, I think that there's an argument that 75 other counties do this, that Tulsa, Oklahoma County, the only counties that uh, really have kind of the, the bandwidth and the expertise to do redistricting on their own. So if it's good enough for 75 counties, why isn't it good enough for Oklahoma and Tulsa? Well, you know, my sense is that if you've got, if the counties have the ability to do this, and, and Commissioner Bloomer talked about how there are staff in Oklahoma County wanting to step up to the plate, wanting to be a part of this process, then that's a real benefit that you can provide an offer to the people of Oklahoma County. Transparency, openness, um, and then there are some amendments that Commissioner Bloomer put forward as well that talked about um, uh, some of the principles that have been used in past redistricting to make sure that you've got continuity of communities. Uh, those things are all struck down. And so the county has essentially outsourced this to state legislative staff. Uh, the county, of course, will have a chance to review it but it's not going to be in the kind of process that Commissioner Bloomer and others think would bring the most kind of transparency and responsiveness uh, to the uh, to the commission's ultimate decisions here. Neva. Well, first of all, I mean, this is not the first time Oklahoma County has done this. It's been two two uh, uh, cycles ago, uh, 20 years ago, when Commissioner Mon actually was uh, on the staff. And so he's had some direct uh, involvement on kind of both sides of the fence on this. But when we talk about transparency, this process uh, arguably has been transparent from the get-go. I mean, we had uh, numerous open meetings, uh, public discussions across the state early on uh, as lawmakers and their legislative team and staff began to began to work on the redistricting process. So this is something that is wide open, something that people have input. I think it's curious that Commissioner Mon said that he had never met or talked to any employee or been approached by anyone at the courthouse uh, with an interest in the redistricting process, specifically the staff related. So if these folks are are interested, they should talk to the commissioners. They should get engaged. I think the opportunity would present itself to have some um, some reasonable involvement in that process. But you have folks that for more than a year have been working day in and day out uh, in what is a very complex uh, uh, exercise, but one that is well down the road. I mean, now, originally, we were supposed to have uh, the debt, the delivery deadline by the Census Bureau was March 31st. The pandemic, all of the uh, all of the deadlines kind of uh, went by the board, and now we're looking at uh, September 30th, maybe a little earlier. But So we've still got uh, uh, a little road ahead of us in terms of getting all of this finalized, getting the legislature to come back in and take care of business. But bottom line is I think it's a good process for 75, 76, or 77 counties if they choose to do it. And, and if I understand Commissioner Bloomer right uh, and Freedom of Information Oklahoma, a nonprofit advocacy group, and full disclosure, I'm on the board there, that 
promotes transparency and openness in government. Um, if I if I understand what they're saying uh, correctly, it's not an either or proposition. It's not the county has to do it all by themselves, or they have to turn it over to the legislative branch uh, and legislative staff because it is incredibly complicated and complex. And you do have a wealth of knowledge in legislative staff. I think that there's an alternative to that where they could have, <clears throat> excuse me, brought legislative staff into the county process. And then you would have had open records and open meetings compliance there rather than transferring it all exclusively to legislative staff to do those uh, initial drafts. Governor Stitt is weighing his options on who will replace Mike Hunter as attorney general for the state of Oklahoma. Stitt has yet to give a timeline on when he will make an announcement for the new AG. Meanwhile, former AG candidate Gentner Drummond is planning another run for the position in 2022. Neva, how will Stitt's decision impact the election next year? Well, I think, first of all, it, it clearly is a very, very important decision for the governor, and I think that's why he's taking his time. I mean, he's not rushing. He's going through a very, uh, uh, what would appear to be a very slow vetting process to try to find the person that he thinks is the best pick. And it's, it's a pick that is important uh, not only from the standpoint of someone who can get in the office and hit the ground running, but someone who will run for election uh, next year. And I think I, I think he's made it clear that he doesn't want a placeholder. He wants someone that will get in, will establish uh, uh, some stability in the office, uh, and will be poised to run as the incumbent uh, uh, and be in a position to mount a very aggressive campaign. And you mentioned Gettner Grum Drummond, I mean, who ran against Mike Hunter, uh, narrowly uh, lost in a runoff uh, four years ago. Um, the fact that he's out there already touting that he's going to run certainly adds to the political dimension that this will be in all likelihood not a two-way race it may be a five or six or who knows how many folks will jump in the attorney general's race on the republican side in a primary but it does all of those things weigh into i think the decision as well as the kind of overarching big piece in this i think uh, that the governor or anyone would be looking at making a selection and that is someone who has a grasp of McGirt has has the capacity to deal with that, which is going to be one of the most uh, uh, laborious and and difficult uh, 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 decisions in terms of having to deal with it from the AG's office standpoint and all of the all of the things that come along with that. So I think a lot of names have been out there. Certainly, there's a, at this point likely a short list, but as we've seen many times before, a lot, a lot of speculation on those names, and 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 we very well could see someone emerge that. Uh, isn't even on the list, although I think probably some of the names out there in circulation are likely one of them to be the next attorney general. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, Gettner Drummond is, you know, probably got to be in that short list uh, with the governor's consideration. He's the most likely, in my mind, to clear a Republican primary field, uh, because if, if the governor picks uh, Ryan Leonard or someone, some of the other names that are uh, purportedly on this, this short list, Drummond has already said he's going to run and you're going to see a Republican primary. I don't get the same impression that if, if Drummond is selected that you'll see Ryan Leonard or other folks jump in and try to create a Republican primary. So, you know, that's that's part of the governor's consideration, or at least I'm, I'm assuming it is, uh, that, you know, if I, if I get this guy, uh, then, you know, I, I can provide some stability in relationships because it's not 
just st stability in the operation of that office. It's stability in that relationship. And it's something that between the governor and the attorney general's office, these are two separately elected independent statewide offices. Uh, but whenever they are working together, they can be quite powerful. And whenever they're at odds with one another, you, we've seen what that looks like over the last couple of years. And so, uh, you know, the governor really wants somebody there that uh, assuming that the governor wins re-election uh, and assuming that his pick wins re-election can be a partnership uh, for the next five years. And the big issue that I think the big litmus test, if there is one, it's where is this individual's uh, position on state and tribal uh, relations mm -hmm. uh, in, in wake of McGirt and you know, even even outside of McGirt, you know, gaming compacts, all of the other issues. You know, to me, you know, the, the, I would suspect that any conversations the governor is having with potential candidates right now um, or appointees, 80-90% of it uh, probably talking about tribal relations. You know, and I, uh, you talk about Gidner Drummond maybe being the, the pick ultimately for the governor. It seems unlikely, I mean, based at least on what is out there right now. I mean, when you start seeing names surface, you start seeing um, uh, news accounts of these reports of, you know, various people being mentioned over and over and over. Never have I seen Gettner Drummond be someone mentioned by any of the folks inside the Capitol in the last couple of weeks. If anything, it's, yes, he's probably going to run, but he's not likely to be the guy running as the attorney general. So could be surprised, but I think uh, I think the setup right now certainly leads everyone's uh, general speculation to go another direction. And how about on the Democratic side? I'm sure they've got to be worried about the fact that you're going to get an appointed Republican who incumbency is is very powerful when it comes to elections. Well, incumbency is very powerful. Being a Republican in a statewide contest is uh, probably more powerful than that right now. I mean, you could have a, you know, if the governor appointed the Democrat to this position, that Democrat would be you know pretty vulnerable coming up in a general election. So just just having the R next to your name in a statewide contest is is really a leg up uh, in Oklahoma. So, you know, I. I hear more Democrats right now whenever they're talking about positions, thinking about this Oklahoma County District Attorney's race that's coming up uh, mm -hmm. and, and not really looking at the statewide race. A new study points to the power of prosecutors on legislation in the state. An article in the Oklahoma Watch reports over a four-year period, state lawmakers passed nearly 60% of measures supported by prosecutors and struck down every one they opposed. Ryan, are you surprised by these findings? Absolutely not surprised. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, we've seen for many years out at the Oklahoma State Capitol, you know, zero percent of the bills that DAs opposed uh, made it into law. I mean, that's that's a pretty incredible figure. I mean, we've I've talked a lot about how the, the 27 district attorneys in the state of Oklahoma are the most powerful elected officials in Oklahoma, and almost no one's ever heard of them. Uh, you know, the, their name recognition isn't great, even within their own districts. It's not uh, universal. Um, you know, these uh, folks often run unopposed in these elections. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they are, you know, whenever we get a new district attorney, what often happens is one DA retires uh, and then the governor appoints and then you've got an incumbent. And then that person runs either unopposed or against, you know, some uh, you know, small candidate that doesn't have a, a chance to beat the incumbent. And so <clears throat> we have this incredibly powerful group of elected politicians uh, that have the ability to take away your liberty, take away your property, and in some instances, take away your life. Um, and you know, they have an equally powerful lobbying arm at the state capitol. Um, and I think that when you look at what their motivations are, uh, their motivations aren't to reform the system. Their motivations, by and large, are to protect the status quo. Because what they enjoy right now 
is leverage. They enjoy a tremendous amount of leverage over the people that they accuse of crimes. That's why you see, you know, 90% plus of these cases enter in plea agreements. I mean, they're moving towards plea agreements all the time, and they need leverage to do that, and criminal justice reform often undermines that leverage. Neva? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, prosecutors should have a, a big voice in the legislative process because they're bound by state law. I mean, these 27 district attorneys across the state of Oklahoma have a job to do, and yes, they do care about uh, the legislation that's being advanced uh, each, each session, but when you go back and look like in 2018, where you had uh, three criminal justice reform bills that they helped to craft. All three bills were signed into law by Governor Fallon. So the idea that they are uh, one-dimensional or just uh, want to have it exclusively their way, I think what you find is you have lawmakers who, um, in general, are very uh, very much in line with the same thinking in terms of the, the philosophy of what you do uh, in the role of uh, a, the district attorney upholding the, the laws that are, that are being passed. Uh, folks at home, I mean, they ultimately get the say at the ballot box and you say Ryan that the oftentimes they aren't uh, even challenged or opposed in elections that's true but it is it, that to me reflects the fact that they're they are satisfied with what's going on in those county courthouses with with what's going on in terms of the prosecutions or the uh, the activity that takes place in those respective offices so next year they'll all be up for re-election if they choose to run and uh, that will be the time when voters can take a serious look and I think we will see um, in every in every cycle we see district attorneys who become embattled because they do things that the folks at the local level uh, in those districts uh, decide is not uh, that they're not fulfilling the role as they uh, the, as they see it should be. So uh, to me, this is uh, you know kind of much to do about nothing in terms of uh, uh, this type of study. You can extract and kind of color it either way you want to. But Oklahoma was one of four states uh, where yes. There were no prosecutor-opposed bills that were passed during, during that time period. But I think, again, it reflects uh, satisfaction with the voters, by and large, across the board. And yet I'm hearing executives, they're accountable to the state. And yet I hear every time that lawmakers are trying to stop lobbying from the Department of Human Services, the Department of Education, the Department of Public Safety, and all others, they're trying to hold back on any kind of lobbying. Why is there not a crackdown on prosecutors? Well, lobbying? as I understand it, the Oklahoma, uh, the Oklahoma District Attorney's Association this advocacy arm is separate from the district attorney's council, which is the state agency mm -hmm. component. So, you know, I think, uh, again, we're always going to see advocacy on issues that are of uh, paramount public importance, uh, regardless of how that how that takes place. And and you're right. I mean, there's always that rub with some folks that uh, that there's uh, undue advocacy, undue lobbying. But uh, I think that's part of the process across the board that we see uh, with all of these large groups groups that have, a, that have an interest in what goes on legislatively each session. And, and the state agency and the association are separate legally, uh, but there's, you know, to say that they're incestuous is, is an understatement. I mean, they, they uh, are basically the, the same uh, people. Uh, they meet at the same place. Often they'll adjourn one meeting and then they'll, uh, adjourn, uh, then they'll convene into another meeting of the association. So you move from a state agency to a nonprofit advocacy association in the same meeting in the same building at the same table with the same people. 
you know, and you know, Neva, to your point of folks running unopposed, I think it's less of a, an endorsement of the incumbent, and it's more of just you know trying to find good candidates uh, that are willing to do this. I mean, look in some of these rural uh, districts, you have a limited number of attorneys, and there's a real fear <clears throat> that if you, the most qualified lawyers are the criminal defense lawyers that have an understanding of what a criminal docket looks like. But there's a real fear that if they run and lose, they face retribution from the political opponent that they've made uh, in that contest. So there's a real fear of folks running against this. And in the legislature, we see the power of prosecutors to show up with this perceived political power uh, and lord it over lawmakers. And we've seen in, in recent years lawmakers, including Republican lawmakers, push back on this perceived political power. But they still uh, show up at the Capitol and pretend that they carry a ton of political weight in, in that building. But when you think about the three-year period that they're talking about, all of these bills that they looked at, uh, and you had for or against 47 bills that they looked at that these district attorneys uh, and folks were engaged in uh, advocating on one way or the other, 47, and every year we talk about that there's a 1,000 plus, how many bills filed each session. So you, com- you, you pile that on top of each other and you look at you know, several thousand bills versus 47 bills, I think it's important to keep it all in in perspective. And that's where I've got some beef with the University of North Carolina's law school's methodology here, because they Mm. they talk about 47 bills and they say there are 800 criminal justice bills. Well, a lot of those are shell bills. A lot of them never moved. And so, you know, 47 bills out of a a three, four year period. Yeah, that's about the number of substantive bills that you're going to be dealing with. So it it doesn't, you know, that they that they only weighed in, you know, the University of North Carolina's report says that they only weighed in on uh, this number, even though there were 800 or something introduced, to me that um, it really distorts uh, the reality in the Capitol. The Oklahoma Employment Security Commission freezes thousands of jobless benefits. The agency says fewer than 20% of the unemployment benefits cardholders were put on hold because of possible fraudulent activity. Neva, what happened here? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. It, it, they they talk about the less than 20 percent, and, and that's probably not, probably not much of a problem unless you're in the 20 percent. Exactly. And unless so, you know, and here, here, here seemed to be the kind of what evolved, and I thought it was, uh, again, kind of the sign of the times that we have this, uh, this social media statement on Saturday afternoon that basically says we have a potential issue and kind of low keys it, talks about that it's a very small percentage by Sunday. Uh, clearly things are <laughs> amping up and uh, now we're talking about that uh, it's a much they take a much more defensive posture and they're they're scrambling trying to uh, uh, trying to uh, kind of get get the base covered and by Monday morning I mean we have lines wrapped around these buildings with folks you know coming to uh, go through the process with their two forms of ID and and trying to determine uh, if in fact uh, their card should be reactivated so again uh, you know here we have uh, this agency that continues to battle these bad headlines and the and this process, uh, which for whatever reasons, I mean, if it's if it's the uh, vendor that they've contracted with and they had whatever reason they believe they have these fraudulent actors out there and being able to deal with that, I think again is symptomatic of this larger picture uh, with an agency that is still coming out from under a tremendous uh, not only just the backlog from the pandemic and dealing with the aftermath. But but trying to bring themselves into the uh, you know bring themselves into the 21st century you know t- with technology and everything else and I think uh, you know we'd like to think that these headlines wouldn't continue but unfortunately I think they may. 
Ryan. Well, Neva, maybe to your point of, of the social media dynamic of this, they should have just posted the, the gif of, you know, well, that escalated quickly. I mean, that should have yes. been their Sunday. They just should have posted that and been done. Uh, that would have given people about as much information as their kind of defensive tweets that we saw or, or social media statements that they put out later in the day. You know, these payments are a lifeline to people. I mean, you, you read the, the reports uh, in the media. You've got folks that, you know, were scrambling to find money to be able to drive to Oklahoma City uh, or to a, a, an employment center somewhere in the state and stand in an hours long line to try to get the money that they need. Uh, and so, I mean, that's that's pretty incredible, um, you know, especially whenever the whole purpose of this is to make sure that there's a, a, a you know, people that have unemployment situations that they have money to, to live and survive on and to be able to go and look for new jobs. And so they just spent, you know, probably you know, a lot of days that they might have otherwise been doing something a heck of a lot more productive dealing with this. And I think it's little consolation to tell those folks, well, you know, you just kind of, you know, got, uh, you know, caught in the net whenever we were going after a majority of fraudulent actors. Um, you know, that doesn't really, you know, help. Uh, and so I think that there's a real issue with this third party vendor uh, that the state needs to work out. And, you know, hopefully they do that, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, and, you know, communication and things like this is just critical. Uh, you know, letting people know what's the problem, how long is it going to take to get fixed? And then, you know, perhaps even thinking of, you know, ways, is there a way to, you know, turn it back on so that people can have access to the money to even show up and contest them being uh, kicked out of the system? I mean, that's, uh, you know, that that is a double-edged sword for folks. That's right, because the Employment Security Commission said that uh, it, their accounts, uh, these accounts that have been frozen, it could be one to three days before they were reactivated. So, I mean, you're not talking about just a few hours or some short delay. You're talking about something that has the potential to, with many of these folks, become a, a very difficult situation. So hopefully uh, the seriousness of it gets everyone, you know, on board. And as you say, whether it's a vendor problem, whatever the problem, it's something that needs to be uh, uh, tackled very quickly. And just another uh, example of the infrastructure issues that we've that became you know real prominent during the pandemic. I mean, this isn't something that has just happened with this agency, and it, and you know, they're coming out of one of the most trying uh, uh, positions for any state agency in the history of the state. Uh, and so, you know, this is you know this isn't a you know we need to go blame these folks this is a, all right here's here's a problem we need to figure out how to fix it at the same time that they're trying to get folks back in the workforce right. and right. trying to yeah. you know incentivize people yeah. to go back to work because uh, i don't know what the current number is in oklahoma but nine million jobs open nationwide i mean we have a, a tremendous problem a tremendous problem for businesses uh, trying to get folks uh, employed so that they can continue to keep their doors open an Oklahoma City police detective retracts his comments in the officer-involved shooting death of a black man. In February, Detective Bryn Carter called the shooting of Benny Edwards by Sergeant Clifford Holman unnecessary, but has now recanted that statement. Ryan, what does this mean for the prosecution? I mean, this is uh, just, a, you know, I don't think that it's going to undermine the prosecution uh, in this case, but, you know, I do think that it is just devastating uh, to the uh, all of the other criminal cases that this police officer is involved in. Uh, I mean, when you when you are and the prosecutors, you know, the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office by law has to 
inform uh, uh, defense counsel in cases, and they've been doing that, um, that, that this officer has recanted this statement. Because what that calls into question is the integrity of every other statement that this officer has made, whether it's in a probable cause affidavit for somebody to be arrested, whether it's a statement that they corroborated in trial to convict someone. Mm-hmm. You know, these, this, is a, this is a powerful indictment of this officer's uh, word uh, in every case that they have been in and every case that they're uh, set to be in. And so they've been removed as, as, a, as a witness in, in every upcoming case. Um, and I think it's also uh, an indictment of the way the police department goes about investigating its own. And so, you know, the district attorney's office and police are often, you know, not just in Oklahoma County, but just, you know, in every county and uh, every municipality are pretty simpatico. You know, they, they, work, uh, they work together they see each other uh, almost always on the same team. And so when you have David Prater, the Oklahoma County District Attorney, calling into question the integrity of the investigation that the Oklahoma City Police Department did into whether or not this officer committed perjury uh, by you know, saying one thing under a sworn statement uh, and, then saying, and, and then recanting that later on without any explanation whatsoever, uh, David Prater says that his office was never consulted in this investigation. Uh, he's calling on the investigation to be turned over to the state attorney general's office. Most counties, uh, most cities would bring in OSBI, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, to investigate something like this. But you know, here at OKCPD did an internal investigation. It's clearly inadequate. And now there's uh, uh, David Prater on the sidelines of folks saying there needs to be more accountability, more oversight. That's that's a pretty big deal. Neva, I think it's a huge deal, and I think the district attorney. I mean, when you have a district attorney in the largest county in the state of Oklahoma saying that you have leadership in in the police department that no longer has the ability to objectively investigate its own officers, that's huge. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, to say then to take that one step further and say, I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, uh, turn this matter over to the attorney general's office. I mean, this this is this is something that is not going to go away. Something that needs to be addressed. Certainly, the implications not not just of a, of a police detective retracting a statement on one shooting, but all of the implications going forward. I mean, it's and it's not to be taken lightly. I mean, you're right. The district attorney uh, and his office work hand in hand in glove with the uh, uh, with uh, law enforcement. Uh, on a day in and day out basis. So when you have something like this crop up and the, the willingness to say, stop, there's there are all kinds of problems here and start outlining those problems, I think that should give pause to everyone, not only uh, in law enforcement, uh, but the community at large uh, needs to uh, step back, reflect on this, and hopefully uh, we'll see some real progress moving forward addressing it. And I can't help but think of when we had a police chemist in Oklahoma County who was brought under question and for years that that threw off every one of the cases that that, that she was involved in. Well, and we, we need to have confidence in our law enforcement officers. We need to have confidence that whenever they're showing up and, and signing uh, a sworn affidavit that they're uh, putting in front of a court ultimately or a district attorney's office, uh, you know, seeking charges or arrest documents against an individual, you know, we need to understand that what they're saying is truthful. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the bigger issue here is that we don't have systems in place that allow us to have the kind of accountability uh, and transparency in these investigations. And I think that that should apply not just for police departments, but it should apply to prosecutors as well. I mean, there, there, there ought to be a way uh, to look into 
police and prosecutorial misconduct and exercise of discretion in both of those uh, agencies. Uh, to, but we just don't have that. And so I think you know David Prater pointing that out and referring it may be, uh, it's, it's a good thing in this one instance, but it highlights that there needs to be some legislative change around this. And I think that this whole controversy, as you said, I mean, in so many instances with the police departments, they do go to the OSBI. They ask them to be the uh, investigative entity at that point. And, it, and I think in this case, I mean, you're talking about a DA who began his career as a police officer, I mean, someone who understands both sides of this this equation equation has a long exemplary career as a district attorney, and I think for these things to be at this place and time where they are uh, is something that we seriously need to take a look at. Aniva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.